I invite you to turn in the Old Testament to the book of Deuteronomy, the 20th chapter. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you. Please feel free to use those Bibles if you so need. And when you found Deuteronomy chapter 20, I'm going to ask you to stand so that we can hear read together the word of the one and only true and living God. Deuteronomy chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. When you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, do not be afraid of them because the Lord your God, who brought you up out of Egypt, will be with you. When you are about to go into battle, the priest shall come forward and address the army. He shall say, hear, O Israel, today you are going into battle against your enemies. Do not be faint-hearted or afraid. Do not be terrified or give way to panic before them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies and to give you victory. The officers shall say to the army, Has anyone built a new house and not dedicated it? Let him go home or he may die in battle and someone else may dedicate it. Has anyone planted a vineyard and not begun to enjoy it? Let him go home, or he may die in battle, and someone else enjoy it. Has anyone become pledged to a woman and not married her? Let him go, go home, or he may die in battle, and someone else marry her. And then the officer shall add, Is any man afraid or faint-hearted? Let him go home, so that his brothers will not become disheartened too. When the officers have finished speaking to the army, they shall appoint commanders over it. Let's pray together. Father, once again, we just say thank you for your word. Thank you that you care enough about the world and the people in it to communicate with us. We thank you that through these thousands of years, Lord, you have preserved your word for us so that we can know you, so that we can know who you want us to be. So now, Lord, we we come to your word again uh, as a family. And ask once again the blessing of your spirit. Give us minds to understand your truth and eyes to see what is truly real beyond what our physical eyes see. Hearts to understand, Lord, and and be on fire to be the people that you have called us to be. So we dedicate ourselves to you and time around your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. Last week, we took a little break from this battle talk of Deuteronomy chapter 20, and we found a little bit of rest on Labor Day weekend by looking at Ephesians chapter 3. And the the rest came because last week we're reminded that our God is able. Our God is an able God, and He can do immeasurably more than anything that we ask or imagine. Our God is immense. We were reminded of that. Our God is eternal. We were reminded of that as well. And so you and I can take the trust fall. And we can just fall back into the arms of our immense and eternal God, knowing that he has got it. Now that verse has implication for every bit of all of our lives, all the time. But particularly it has implication as we return to Deuteronomy chapter 20 this morning. And we focus on people... Uh, that are going to be people uh, of battle. Let's take just a few minutes and review where we've been in the past 
few weeks. We, we've learned a lot from this chapter. And one of the first things we've learned is that battle is going to be a constant reality for the lives of these people. They're never going to be free from it. They're going to have to go to battle to obtain and take possession of the land that God has promised to them. And they're going to have to fight to preserve that land and its people once God has given it to them. Because from this land, Bethlehem and Judea in particular, and from these people, the line of the future King David will come Jesus the Messiah, whose one act of righteousness leads to justification for all men. Through these people from this land will come Jesus the Messiah, whose one act of righteousness will lead to justification and life for all men. Jesus, the Christ, will give eternal life, eternal life to all the Father gives to him. So listen, the the stakes are huge for these people to fight well and to be victorious in battle to protect and to preserve this land. Now we've seen in order for these people to be victorious in battle, they have to be people of faith. They've got to believe that God is with them. They've got to believe that God is for them and that he fights for them. They've got to have faith to believe that no matter how intimidating or how powerful the enemy may seem to them, their God is able. He can do immeasurably more than they ask or imagine. We've seen these people have to learn to look with spiritual eyes of faith. That even though they cannot see them, there are horses and chariots of fire around them. They are a reality. The last time we were in this passage, we talked about these three exemptions that God allows from going into battle. I read them again this morning. If a man has built a home and not lived in it, go, go home. If he's planted a vineyard four years, labored there and not enjoy it, go home. If a man is engaged to be married and has not yet married the woman, go home. God in his compassion did not want them to be on the battlefield because God was winning another kind of war. There was more than one kind of battle going on. There was the the, the physical battle with the fighting and the swords and all that. But there's also another battle going on. Uh, The battle that's required to build a strong home and a strong family life and a strong economy. So God sent some to battle and God sent some home so that they could build those strong and healthy families. So that these men could work hard and have a strong economy because the allies of the nation around them are on the people of Israel or would be when they took possession of the promised land. And these are the marks of the blessing of God. When you live your life rightly before God, you will have strong, healthy, flourishing families. You'll have a strong economy. This is what it looks like to love and to honor God with all of your life. This morning... We come to what we did not cover last week, or the, week, the last week where we were here. There is one more exception that's allowed in this passage. And you heard it this morning, so I ask you to look again at verse 8 in chapter 20. God says through Moses here, Is any man afraid or faint-hearted? Let him go home so that his brothers will not become disheartened too. So if you are afraid... Literally, the Hebrew is, if you are soft-hearted, you are to be sent home. 
Now again, as we come to this passage, we see what we saw with the last exemptions. There's no scorn here. There's no judgment. These men are not to be court-martialed because of their fear or executed for desertion. Not at all. Fear is natural enough for them. Because look, the Jews, they weren't trained for war. They weren't equipped for war. In reality, what were they? They were just this huge group of slaves who had been set free. So now it's time to, to fight. Of course, some of them are going to be afraid. But God's point through Moses here is that fear has no place on the battlefield for obvious reasons. The first, that that soldier that's afraid, he's a detriment to himself, you know, paralyzed with fear at the time of battle. Can't even protect himself. Paralyzed with fear, he would be completely useless to those around him who were depending on him to defend them as well. And so that guy is to go home. He's a detriment to himself. But the second reason listed here for those fearful to be sent home is because fear spreads. Look again in verse 8. Send the fearful home so that his brothers will not become disheartened too. Look, these people have experience with fear. They have suffered the consequences and the results of being fearful. We back up 40 years. The people are gathered as they are now in the plains of Moab, except this time they're on the southern edge of the promised land, Kadesh Barnea, and they are ready to go in and take possession of the promised land. And you know this story. Before they take possession of it, they send in 12 men who are going to spy out the land and see what this promised land is truly like. So the 12 spies go out and they return and they bring their report. And it's a very factual report. The land does flow with milk and honey, just as God said. The people who live there are powerful. The cities are fortified and very large. Those are the facts. And from that same set of facts, two very different opinions emerge. Caleb, one of the spies, speaks first. He says, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. Now we would have to call that a faith response, wouldn't we? Because as we just said, the slavery, the the, uh, Israelites at this point were only a few months out of slavery. No army, no equipment. So the call to go to fight is a call of faith. We would have to call this imprudent advice, really, because the physical realities and the ways of the world say, don't fight these people. So 10 of the other spies, they give voice to to this measured reason. We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And scripture says they spread a bad report. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there were of great size. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked the same to them. And they spread this bad report. Now, literally the word spread in Hebrew means to to bring forth. And this is a really vivid word. They brought forth what was inside them and what was inside them was fear. The same word is used in Proverbs 29.11. A fool gives full vent to his anger. Blah! 
There it is. It spews out all over. And so it was with the ten spies. What was inside of them? Fear. So fear spews out over all the people in Israel. And Scripture says that that night, the people of the community raised their voices and they wept aloud. And they mumbled and they grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And they said, if only we had died in Egypt. If only we had died in the desert. We should appoint leaders and go back to Egypt. Fear spewed. Yuck. All over everyone. Then Joshua, the spy from whom we have not yet heard, he speaks. He says, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord. And do not be afraid of the people of that land because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid. But we know the rest of that story. The people would not listen to Caleb. They would not listen to Joshua. They would not let their faith words wash over them and wash away all the fear. Here's words of faith. Let's wash off that fear that spewed all over you. They would not listen. Instead, the people said, hey, let's stone them. Let's stone Joshua and Caleb. Fear spreads. The kingdom of God can only advance through faith. And that's why fear has no place on the battlefield. You and I now, our battle is for the gospel. We advance the kingdom of God first by living holy lives ourselves. And that's a battle, isn't it? That's a battle that each of us face every day. We have to fight to live the life that God has called us to be. It's a battle to be the holy people that God has called us to be. But the Lord is with us. In faith, we have to believe that we can. We got to stop saying, no, Lord, I can't. I'm weak. No, we believe by faith that God can make us those people. The battles for the gospel, that the words of the gospel will actually come out of our mouths. That Jesus came into this world to save sinners. That people can be set right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. We got to say that to a culture who doesn't want to hear that there's anything wrong with them. Be set right with God. What are you talking about? What damage can fear and faithfulness, faithlessness do in our battle to advance the gospel? I want to answer that question by asking you to turn with me in the New Testament to Mark chapter 6. Would you turn to Mark chapter 6? The second gospel in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, if you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 711. This is Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. It says that Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him that he even does miracles? 
Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown among his relatives and in his own house is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Two statements in these verses intrigue me. The first is that Jesus could not do any miracles there. What? What do you mean Jesus could not do any miracles? What does that mean? Does that mean that there is a power that is greater than Jesus' power? Does that mean that something can actually bind Jesus and render him unable to do a miracle? The answer is no. Now I'm going to have to call on the big guns for this verse, so we'll start with John Calvin. Boom! <laughs> this is what he writes about that verse. He says that it was the impiety of Christ's countrymen that closed the door against the performance of a greater number of miracles among them. He had already given them some taste of his power, but they willingly stupefy themselves so as to have no relish for it. For when the Lord perceives that his power is not accepted by us, he at length withdraws it. And yet we complain that we are deprived of his aid, which our unbelief rejects and drives far from us. That's John Calvin. Albert Barnes writes this. It would have been useless to the great purposes of Jesus' mission to have worked miracles there. We are not to suppose that his power was limited by the belief or unbelief of people. It would have been of no use in proving to them that he was from God to have worked miracles. He gave sufficient proof of his mission and left them in their chosen unbelief without excuse. It's also true in spiritual things that the unbelief of a people prevents the influences of the Holy Spirit from being sent down to bless them. This is William Hendrickson. I do this all the time. I love it. (laughs) Wake up. There's two more to go. William Hendrickson writes, Jesus could not perform these miracles because under these circumstances of unbelief and opposition, he did not want to do them. Instead of asserting his almighty power to suppress the people's rebellious stand, he respected their own responsibility for their attitudes and actions. And finally, good old Matthew Henry from the 18th century. He says, it is a strange expression, as if unbelief tied the hands of omnipotence itself. He would have done as many miracles there as he had done elsewhere, but he could not, because people would not make application to him, nor sue for his favors. He could have wrought them, but they forfeited the honor of having them wrought for them. Note, by unbelief and contempt of Christ, men stopped the current of his favors to them and put a bar in their own door. Thus saith the commentators. But this verse in Luke made me stop and wonder what might Jesus not do because we are more full of fear than faith. What might Jesus not do among us 
Because we are more full of fear than faith. What if Calvin is right? Jesus has given us a taste of his power, but we stupefy ourselves and have no taste for that power of which we know. What if Hendrickson is right? What if Jesus respects our own responsibility for our faithless attitudes and actions? What if Barnes is right? That our unbelief, which is the same as faithlessness, prevents the influences of the Holy Spirit from being sent down to bless us. What if Matthew Henry is right? That we forfeit the honor of having miracles of Christ among us because we do not ask. In any case, these people in Mark chapter 6, among people who were amazed by his teaching, and that certainly describes us, and among people who had acknowledged that Jesus had the power to do the miraculous, and that certainly describes us, among these people, Jesus could do no miracles. Something for us to think about. The second statement that intrigues me in that passage is at the end of verse 5. And it says there, and Jesus was amazed by their lack of faith. What does it take to amaze Jesus? The creator and the sustainer of the universe. What does it take to amaze him? Well, scripture only mentions twice that Jesus was amazed. And both occasions of amazement had to do with faith. On one occasion, Jesus was amazed by the faith of the centurion, the Roman commander. He was a Gentile. And this centurion came to Jesus and said, Lord, my servant, he's sick. He lies at home paralyzed. He's suffering terribly. And Jesus said, well, shall I come and heal him? And the centurion says, no, Lord, no. No, no, I don't deserve that you should ever come into my home, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. You just speak the word, Jesus, and my servant will be, will be healed. And when Jesus heard this statement, he was amazed. And he said to those following him, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Here's a man who was not privileged to have grown up as a a child of God, hearing the stories of God, seeing the faithfulness of God through the centuries. He wasn't privileged to that, and yet he had tremendous faith in Jesus. But here in Galilee, Jesus' hometown, the place where he grew up, the place that knew him in his sinless perfection, because that's what he was always, the place that knew his mother, His mother, the one chosen above all women on earth to become the mother of the Son of God. Among people who should have known better, people who should have known better, Jesus was amazed by their lack of faith. So two times Jesus is amazed. He's amazed by tremendous faith and he is amazed by tremendous lack of faith. In which way will you amaze Jesus? Were you amazing by your tremendous faith or by your tremendous lack of faith? And what about us together as a family? Well, I pray, I pray that our faith will be amazing. That we will not believe lies. 
that you and I by faith will not believe that our culture has slipped so far away that it can never be reached with the transforming power of the gospel. It has not. I hope that we will not believe that the giants in our land cannot be defeated. And there are giants to us. The media seems like a giant to us. We feel powerless before the media and its stars. They influence and shape the thinking not only of of America, but around the world. They're giants that can't be defeated. We feel helpless before the quote-unquote intelligentsia. They have control of our schools. So their thinking shapes the thinking of all these young people. These are giants to us. I hope we don't believe that these are giants that are too powerful for us to be defeated. How do we defeat them? With faith. We've got to remember that the yeast has not gone bad. Remember that? Remember that. The yeast has not gone bad. Say it with me. The yeast has not gone bad. And that's how Jesus describes the kingdom of God. He says it's like yeast that the woman put in that dough and that little bit of yeast worked its way through that huge lump of dough until the whole lump was affected and the whole lump of dough, it was able to rise. That's what Jesus says the kingdom of God is like. The gospel, the gospel that you and I believe, that you and I speak, it has power to work within our culture and to permeate it. It does. And to literally make it rise, to elevate it, we pray above the current moral chaos and morass that masquerades as wisdom. Just look in our world at what's being said and being touted as wisdom. Just watch some Planned Parenthood videos and what, what the wisdom of the world is. The yeast, the yeast is not gone bad. Neither is the seed dead. Say that with me. The seed is not dead. You ready? The seed is not dead. Jesus compared the kingdom of God to the seed, the mustard seed, the tiniest of all seeds. And he said, when that seed grows, it becomes a tree, a tree so big that the birds of the air build their nests in it. The kingdom of God is ever growing. Jesus said so. Now listen, if this is true, if the yeast has not gone bad and the seed is not dead, then you and I don't need to cower in fear, do we? We don't need to, to hide. We need to move forward in faith, believing that the gospel still makes a difference. I was in a coffee shop on Thursday. I like to study at coffee shops. So I took my computer and went to a coffee shop and there were TVs on in the coffee shop, but the volume was turned down. But the subtitles caught my eye and this is what was on, The View. Y'all know what The View is? And there was Whoopi Goldberg. She was speaking. And the gist of what I missed was these women around the table with her are very disgruntled about Christians in America. And how we're messing everything up. And this is what Whoopi said. I can't direct it, uh, quote it directly because I couldn't rewind it. But, but Whoopi said this. Christians aren't going away. So we better learn how to deal with them. And I wondered in that moment. Does Whoopi Goldberg have more faith in us than, than we have in ourselves? I hope not. And, you know, the Lord calls on us this morning to be people of faith who believe we're not going anywhere. 
to believe that what we do here in this place is going to make it a difference for Jesus' sake. Every time we gather on Sunday mornings to do what we're doing right now, to worship the Lord, every time that this worship is Christ-centered, turning people's hearts toward Christ, then the kingdom of God advances. Because we believe that turning people's gaze toward Christ and not to what they want or what they need or what they feel, ah, 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 no, when we focus on Christ, we believe that that has transforming power. We believe that this new Christian education plan that we are so excited about, we believe it's going to advance the kingdom because we believe it's going to produce strong families that are located all around Charleston. And if you have families who love the Lord and love each other and love their neighbors, what's going to happen to the kingdom of God? It's going to advance. The same thing with our community groups. People coming together in locations around the city, fellowshipping together, studying the word of God together, praying together, joining hands and saying, what can we do to make a difference in our community for Jesus' sake? What's going to happen? The kingdom of God is going to advance. And so... We, the leadership of the church, call on you to participate in worship, participate in Christian ed, participate in community groups. And when you're there, speak words of faith. Speak words of faith. This is what we can do with the help of the Lord and through the power of the gospel. And in faith, we'll advance the kingdom. We aren't going to hide, and neither are we going away. Whoopee. Woo, you're right. We're a force to be contended with. Now look. I've gone way, way, way away from Deuteronomy 20. So we're going to go back. Go back to Deuteronomy 20, finally. Ah, there's the golden word of this morning, finally. We're almost done. Let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 20. And here's my question. What happens to the ones who are sent home because they were afraid? You know, what do you do? You're going home because you know you were afraid. You said you were afraid, and everyone else knows that you were afraid. So what do you do? What what, what are you doing here? Well, I'm afraid. Why are you afraid? What do you do? How do you respond? My father was sent home. My father was sent home when he went to enlist in the Navy during the Korean War. Tall and lanky. They said to my father, you are too skinny. You are too underweight, and so they rejected him. Now, just from perspective, when I was my father's same age, I was my current height, 6'2", and I weighed 137 pounds. Woo! (laughs) Too skinny. So what did my father do when he was sent home? Well, he ate bananas. And he ate bananas, and he ate bananas, And he ate bananas, so many bananas, he could not stand the sight or the smell or the taste of them. And I don't remember what he said now or how long the period was between his first attempt to enlist and his second attempt to enlist. But when he went back the second time, several weeks, maybe a month later, I don't remember, he weighed two pounds more than the minimum weight and he was allowed to enlist in the Navy. Now, my dad could have gone home, and he could have said to himself and everyone else, well, I tried. I tried to enlist, but they rejected me. They wouldn't accept me. It's not my fault. I don't have to go serve in that Korean War. I guess I'll let the other guys do the fighting for me. But that wasn't his response. 
He took the opportunity of being sent home to prepare himself and to make himself acceptable for battle. And that's what you and I need to do this morning. We aren't sent home in fear, the fear that prevented us from fighting in the first place to allow that fear to fester. We don't go home and say, well, I'm off the hook. Someone else will have to do it. No. If you're a fearful person, if you're not engaged in the battle for the gospel in your own life, fighting for that holiness, if you're not engaged in the battle to to extend the kingdom through the gospel, then home time is self-examination time for you. Why am I fearful? What's the source of my fear? What is it that I'm not believing rightly about God so that I'm afraid? What giant is there in my life that I believe is too big to defeat? Why do I believe that God won't help me? Why do I believe it's okay to be exempt from the battle? What's my view of myself? And my view of my place in the kingdom or in the church that makes it okay with me to let other people do all the fighting. If you're home right now, if you're not engaged in the battle and the fight for the gospel, then you need to use your home time to ask the Lord to increase your faith, reveal himself to you, to remove your fear so that you're able to fight. You need to use that home time to ask the Lord to fill you with love enough that you want to fight. I think the most famous verse in all of Scripture must be John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. When we're talking about fighting, as we have been now for these weeks, when we're using militant language, please don't equate that with anger. There's nothing worse than an angry evangelical. There really isn't. We fight because we love. We love the world. We love it enough to think it's worth saving. We love the people in it enough to believe that they are worth saving, worth fighting for. God believed that. God believed the world that was worth it. The people in it were worth it. And so what did he do? He gave Jesus to save it. And that's the gospel. And it's with the Gospel love that we ask God to save the world through us. And I really mean that. Save the world. The world as we are experiencing, save it through us. And in faith, we get in the battle. And we believe that he will do just that. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we need you to make us people of faith. Seems like everything in our lives points us toward fear causes us to think or to believe we can't. Lord, we give up so easily in defeat in our own lives when it comes to to living the holy life that you call your people to live as a testimony to your goodness and your faithfulness. We so easily say we can't or worse, that we don't want to. But Lord, if you transform us and cause our faith to increase, we will want to live that life because we'll be beyond ourselves and our own wants We'll see beyond that to to what you can do in us and through us as we submit our lives to you and in faith believe that you can make us different people. Lord, we're so fearful as a church. It's so easy 
to come together corporately and to worry and to fret and to look at budgets and limitations and think we can't, we don't have enough of this or that. Lord, and we suddenly forget that we're supposed to be people of faith in a God who can do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. So remind us, Lord, that that is the kind of God that you are. And we pray this very, very, very bold prayer now. That you would literally save this world or our corner of it through us. Through our faithful commitment to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And through our faithful commitment to love our neighbor as ourselves. And Lord, in faith, help us to believe that you can do it. Help us to watch for you to do it in us and through us. Advance your kingdom through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.